5, verse 7, the Beatitudes, Jesus says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And as you can tell, we have a double dose of mercy today in this verse. In the previous verses, Jesus taught that the poor in spirit would receive the kingdom of heaven. That those who mourn would be comforted. That the meek will inherit the earth. And those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be satisfied. All the first four Beatitudes, these attitudes of the heart wrought by the grace of God, are responded to in the second half of these verses with something else. However, today in this next Beatitude, which begins to uh, go out from the inner man, uh, from the heart to our actions, we see this double dose of mercy. Blessed, happy are the merciful, those who show mercy, those who give mercy, for they shall receive mercy. So it's pretty important today that we have a good grasp on just what mercy is. And we're going to try to look at it like a diamond today, turning it about, uh, seeing how the light reflects off of each angle, as we compare and contrast mercy to, I might say, some of its siblings, or maybe some of its second cousins. Seeing, seeing how things like love, grace, justice, uh, forgiveness, some of these other things that we think about often when we think about mercy, how all of these things reflect off of mercy, how they work alongside of mercy, or even precede mercy, result from mercy. And seeing all of this will hopefully help us to better understand what mercy itself is, and then how it's rightly applied. Our goal today, then, is to learn these four things. Number one, the motive for mercy. The motive. Before we learn all the ins and outs of what mercy is, let's get our motivation built up and in line with the truth of Scripture and the gospel. And once we have that right motivation for mercy, to be merciful, we'll be increasingly desiring to know, uh, number two, what is the definition What is mercy? What's the definition of mercy? And then number three, the target. What are the targets of mercy? Where does mercy go? And then number four, the fruit. What is the fruit of mercy? So number one, the motive. What is the motive of mercy? Please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew 18, starting in verse 21. In this passage, it's right after Jesus had finished teaching on the steps and the principles of church discipline. Church discipline. He teaches us about being ready and willing to show mercy and forgiveness right after teaching us about church discipline. Isn't that amazing? Uh, That Christ would teach us about discipline in the church and then follow that up by reminding us to be forgiving people, to be merciful people. In verse 21, uh, Peter's carrying on this conversation, Matthew 18, 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And by the way, Peter is showing off here. Peter had a tendency at times to do this. The rabbinical teaching on forgiveness, what the Jews taught at the time about forgiveness, was that there would be just a maximum of three Offerings of forgiveness. If you forgave somebody three times, 
and then that person came back and offended you a fourth, well, then they would teach you are no longer under any obligation to continue forgiving them. It was done. So Peter's thinking here, oh man, listen to this guy. How about seven times? If I forgive somebody seven times, that's like double the rabbis plus one. Don't worry, don't no praises, okay? I'm, I'm all right. Peter's thinking this way. And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. And some English translations say seventy times seven just because of the word order in the original Greek. Uh, but exact math aside, when Jesus gave this response, the point was not to give an exact number. The point was not for us to start doing the math to find out how little we have to forgive people. The point Jesus was making is to stop keeping score. To be ready to forgive. Not how little we have to, but how often and how much. And to prove that out, he continues with this parable, which sometimes is called the parable of the unmerciful servant. In verse 23 is where it starts. It says, therefore, uh, Jesus said, therefore, the kingdom of heaven, it may be compared. So this is not an exact replica. It's a parable, a comparison. It may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, a talent is worth 20 years wages. One talent is 20 years wages for a laborer. And a day's wage was called a denarii. So let's give this guy no days off, okay? So 365 denarii times 20. And you get... 7,300 denarii, okay? That's one talent. 7,300. So far, so good? Now multiply that times 10,000. 10,000, that is 73 million denarii. Meaning, a denarii is a day's wage. 73 million days worth of pay is what this guy owes. That's 200,000 years Worth of work with no days off. So Jesus is not giving a number here for us to do the math again to figure out how to make this work. You can't make this work. It's impossible. The point of this number was to show us and show us immediately. There is no way this person could ever repay the debt. Just impossible. Verse 25, and since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children, and all that he had and payment to be made. Uh, This master in the parable is going to get whatever he could get out of his servant and out of his family, and then just cut his losses. Uh, Showing his master's worth, by the way. Uh, To be able to loan out that much. Where did he spend all that, by the way? But to be able to loan out that much, or just to cut the losses, shows the magnitude of the wealth of this master. Verse 26, so the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, imploring the master, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. Everything. How was this man going to pay him back? Everything. 200,000 years worth of labor. This request, uh, at best, was foolish. He's already an adult Uh, with a wife and kids. 
Even if he had not been born yet, he would not have 200,000 years left to labor. And this is part of the parable that we need to pay close attention to. Because uh, Christians, we had a debt that we could never hope to repay. Our sin debt. Uh, The difference being, uh, this servant was going to be able to work, and he was going to be able to earn some money and pay something to his master. But we, Christians, Christians, we still sin now, don't we? We still sin. We still do this. Uh, What kind of righteousness, what kind of pure righteousness would I have to offer to God to pay him back? Uh, I, all of us really, have zero ability to earn righteousness with which to pay God back. We have none at all. Uh, One of the great errors of the idea, even of uh, the doctrine of purgatory, the idea that there's a place where a person's impurities can be burned away to make them fit or make them ready for heaven. If all of my impurity has to be burned away, think, where in me is there no impurity? Nowhere. Nowhere. If all of my impurity would have to be burned away to make me fit for heaven, there would be nothing left of me to go. So instead, God makes us, 2 Corinthians 5, a new creation in Christ Jesus. There's a miraculous work of change. Uh, This servant in the parable has a debt he could never hope to pay back and is trying to offer to pay it. If he just had more time. That's a lot of time. And his master could never agree to that deal, of course. It's an impossibility. This servant, then, is in a pitiable position. And that's exactly what this master does. He pities him. Verse 27. Out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. He showed him Mercy. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants. Two servants serving the same master. They're in the same boat. And his fellow servant, who owed him a hundred denarii. And if you're making minimum wage, it's just a little over $7,500. That's not pocket change. But it is a little less than... In fact, it's 0.0001%. That much less than what he had just been forgiven. And though seizing him, he seized this fellow servant, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. Imagine the tone of voice if you're choking somebody and yelling at them. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. Sounds familiar. Sounds like something we just heard recently. But, verse 30, he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. Imagine the anger and the zeal for revenge to choke a man 
and drag him off to prison. And by the way, you can't make money in debtor's prison. You can't have an income there. The only way to get out is for someone you know to go and pay your debt for you. So if this servant didn't have that kind of a connection, he would have remained imprisoned indefinitely. And verse 31 says, When his fellow servants, other fellow servants, saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. And then his master summoned him back and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. I showed you mercy. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also Jesus says, my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother, uh, not just in lip service, but from your heart. Question. Who alone has the resources needed to get this servant out of prison? Remember, he can't make money there. If he's going to get out of there, who's going to have to pay his debt? Who alone would have the resources to pay this debt of 73 million denarii? The answer is the master alone. That master is the only one. Everything you have. Okay, now back to this world here. Everything you have. uh, Whether you are a Christian or not. Everything you have. Every breath you take belongs to God. God is our creator. He is our maker. He is our rightful master. So even if we don't believe he exists, that doesn't change the fact that he owns everything. Remember, God doesn't begin to exist for a person when they decide he does. God's either real or he isn't. He's either master or he's not. And he is. And he owns everything. He's holy, all righteous. He is all powerful. He is all glorious. He is entirely good. Entirely perfectly just. In everything he is. And in everything he does. God does perfect goodness and justice because he is perfectly good. And just. And our rejection of him, our sin against him, and think every time we sin, we're making a momentary decision there to go our own way, aren't we? Our sin against him makes us debtors. To an extent we could never repay. So all we have left to do is to be pitied. All we have left to do is to be pitied and plead for forgiveness. And here's the good news. All who call on the name of the Lord, all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Church, how did God pay this debt we owe? How did God pay this debt? Who is the only master who could afford to pay this debt? (laughs) The master himself. 
So God the Son loved us in our pitiable condition and took our sin debt on himself at the cross, dying for our sins once and for all. For all time, it is finished. This is the mercy of God given to us. And Jesus in this parable is teaching us, in this mercy with which you have life and with which you have peace with God, eternal life in him, being counted righteous, being adopted as his sons and daughters, all of this being true. Show mercy to your fellow servants. Show mercy to your fellow man. All these people who are in the same boat as us, and it's not just us in these four walls, just us in this church, the people that we see all around us, all of these people in the same boat as us, they will never, ever owe you more than we owe to God. Never. They will never owe you anything like what Christ paid for our redemption. Could never compare. So now think about that in light of that final verse in Matthew 18. What is our motivation for mercy? What is our motivation? The mercy that God has showed us. God has been abundantly merciful toward us. Therefore, we show mercy to others. And if we do not show mercy to others, God will not show mercy to us. Or as Jesus said in Matthew 5, 7, the merciful will receive mercy. But how do we know how to show mercy? What enables us to show mercy? The answer is God's mercy towards us. God shows us mercy, which causes us to be merciful toward others which results in mercy being shown to us. That's a wonderful cycle of mercy, isn't it? It's wonderful. And then on the other hand, if we are unmerciful towards others, it's because we're not getting what God's mercy is to us, which means we aren't receiving God's mercy. We can say it this way, saved people are going to be increasingly merciful people. Saved people, this is a statement, are going to be increasingly merciful people because saved people know what it's like to receive mercy. And, and that statement just goes right in line with, are Christians going to grow? Is God going to continue to do the work that he started in us and even perfect it? Well, yes. Saved people are going to be increasingly merciful. Now, Self-righteous people are unmerciful people because they think they can pay back everything if they just had the time, if they just had the right circumstances, if they just had the right environment. It's not their fault, you see. So we say these both ways. Saved people are going to be increasingly merciful Unmercifulness comes from self-righteousness. Does that make sense? A self-righteousness is the result of a very low view of God and a very 
high view of self, and therefore a selfish view of others, uh, as if other people exist for, right, my good pleasure, for my good pleasure. So, of course, there won't be much mercy to be found there. Saved people who understand that the righteousness they possess is actually Christ's righteousness, given to them, imputed to their account, they're going to have an increasingly high view of God, an accurate view of themselves, and then therefore a fellow servant view of others. We are all hopeless and helpless outside of the mercy of God. We still sin, and we know all this stuff. So then, Christians, why should we be surprised when other people sin. We still do. We shouldn't be surprised by the sins of others, especially if they're lost. They need God's forgiveness through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, just like we did. And therefore, when we view all of this correctly, there is then a willingness to show mercy, among many other things that God has shown us in his great love. Remember the poor in spirit, Those who mourn over their sin. The meek. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Guess what they're going to be towards other people? Merciful. Merciful. So now, with all of that in mind, as we seek to understand uh, what we should be ready to show others as God has given to us, we need to start defining terms. So this is number two, the definition of mercy. A definition of mercy. And we know that being merciful is is not being passive. It doesn't mean to be passive or or too weak to respond. It's not being easygoing or, or turning a blind eye to sin. Mercy is not trying to erase a person's guilty conscience or to distract them from their problem of sin. Actually, you cannot be merciful by distracting someone from their need for reconciliation with God. That isn't merciful. You might even call it cruel. Withholding from a person what they really need. To know a person needs, to know what they need, and to fail to offer it in an attempt just to diffuse the uncomfortability of the moment? Well, that's not merciful at all. Wayne Grudem defines mercy as this, God's mercy, God's goodness toward those in misery and distress. God's goodness towards those in misery and distress. And the word in the Greek means to show pity, to show compassion, which means something very important, the word showing in that definition. Being merciful, we can say then, is not a feeling. Being merciful is an action. Being merciful is something you do. It isn't compassion, it's showing compassion. And as we see very clearly in the gospel, uh, mercy always costs something. It costs. Uh, For God, it costs his son. It required suffering that he had to take on himself. Uh, Mercy is often compared with grace. Uh, spoken of together with grace. And, and we say it this way often in relation to our sin and salvation. We might say, grace is getting something that we do not deserve, 
Mercy, we might say, is not getting what we do deserve. So we think about that maybe in, in, in terms of salvation with heaven and hell. God's gracious to me in that, and God's gracious to Christians in that we are going to be given eternal life with him. We think of heaven. That's grace. Now, we are not going to suffer in hell because God has shown us mercy. Now, Martin Lloyd-Jones, the medical doctor who became a pastor, says it this way. In grace, God deals with man in our sin. In mercy, God deals with man in our misery. Uh, the suffering that sin causes. So we could say it like this. Mercy provides the treatment for our symptoms. And grace provides the cure for our disease. If you break your leg, that hurts. And you can take medicine to make it not feel bad, but your leg is still dangling there and you still got a problem, yes? So mercy takes away the pain. Grace fixes the problem. Mercy is also tied uh, to justice and forgiveness. We know that forgiveness flows out of God's mercy. Titus 3.5 says this, uh, that God saved us according to his own mercy. According to his attribute of mercy. It's interesting to consider this. God's attribute of mercy. To think of what mercy is, along with his grace and other attributes like it. Would they have ever been on display? Would they have ever been exercised or seen if there had never been any sin? When sin entered God's creation, his glory was only revealed all the more. We have more to worship him for, more to delight in, and we are able to because of his mercy. We should also note that God's mercy is exercised or given only to those who cry out for it. All who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Remember, we learned about the poor in spirit a couple of weeks back. The rich in spirit don't ask for mercy. In the same way, because forgiveness is a relational Transaction. We think about forgiveness. Forgiveness, when someone does wrong to another, there needs to be, of both parties, something happening. The one who does wrong needs to say, I did wrong, will you please forgive me? And then the one who has been done wrong needs to say, yes, I forgive you. There is a transaction that takes place before the reconciliation of those two parties can be put back together. Does that make sense? Forgiveness is a transaction, a relational transaction. And so we know this, we can only show mercy and forgiveness towards others if they ask for it, if they should acknowledge their need. Now we can certainly, and we should certainly be ready and eager to extend that forgiveness, to be reconciled, uh, being that we are growing Christians and increasingly merciful in our actions. And we know that vengeance belongs to the Lord that we've been commanded to love even our enemies and to never repay evil for evil. But it is impossible to forgive a person who does not desire it or even believe they need it. If you think about that, God doesn't do this. God doesn't do this. So in that case, uh, the merciful thing to do would be to speak the truth to them in love. To lovingly confront the offender. 
in hopes of seeing their repentance and reconciliation first to God because their sin is first against Him and then also to you and being ready to forgive them. And if they respond well and in repentance, then praise the Lord. And if they do not, if they don't, we pray. We hope for the best. We probably do some grieving. And all of this humbly because we know we've sinned against others too. But we do not fake like everything is good when it's not. If God's mercy, think about this, if God's mercy meant that he faked it like there was nothing wrong with us, if God just faked like there was nothing wrong with us, we would all end up in hell. And probably angry with God for lying to us about our true condition. God's mercy confronted us and met our need. God in his mercy makes us aware of who we are and what's wrong and what he's done to meet the need with the solution only he could provide. Which brings up the idea of justice. What is the correlation between mercy and justice? Is, is mercy the abandoning of justice? Well, no, it couldn't be. Or God would cease to be just. He is both just and merciful. Well, that's why it is a false mercy that ignores sin or remains passive or indifferent towards sin. I think of David and his struggle to respond to the sin of his son Absalom. Uh, Absalom took vengeance into his own hands and killed his brother. And then he complained about the time it was taking to get his privileges back. He, he killed his brother, and then when he wasn't getting everything back as fast as he thought he should, he complained about it. Uh, he burned the fields of his neighbor, Joab, who happened to be the commander of the army, in order to get him to ask his dad to let him back in. That takes some guts. I'm going to burn down the fields of my neighbor, who just happens to be the commander of the army, who has a pretty stellar record in battle, because I want to talk to my dad again. And then once he got back and felt those good graces of his father David, he started undercutting him and eventually tried to supplant him and take his throne. It took David's men disobeying their king's command to put Absalom to a stop, to put his treason to an end. David had decided he couldn't do anything because he loved his son too much. That he couldn't do anything because he loved his son too much. When in reality, if he really loved his son, if he was really loving his son, if he was really loving Israel, the nation he was king over, if he was really loving the Lord, he would have acted justly towards Absalom's sin. And then, if Absalom had confessed, repented, asked for mercy, David being king could have granted that. But ignoring sin, ignoring justice, did not make it better. Ignoring the problem didn't make it go away. In truth, if you think about this, mercy cannot exist 
Mercy cannot exist if there is no acknowledgement of justice. It can't. If there is no justice to serve, then what need is there of mercy? There's no need for mercy if there's no justice. And it's only when we remember, we've got to remember that our justice has been served through the blood of Christ. Mercy did not mean there was no payment. There was payment. There was justice through the blood of Christ. Uh, that Then we would be eager Thinking about these things, knowing these things, knowing this is the basis for our righteousness. We would then be eager to see the sins of others, even their sins against us, to see them covered by the same means that our sins have been covered. When we remember where our mercy came from, then we consider and even desire the possibility that the sins of others could be just, justly and mercifully covered in the same way. Everybody else needs Jesus' blood just as bad as we do. So number three, the targets of mercy. The first, sin. Mercy towards sin. And we've discussed this most already today. Uh, the obvious starting point here is to consider mercy towards sin. Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 5. Uh, but God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And we've talked already about God's mercy toward us in our sin, the mercy we might show to others in their sin. But there's also the aspect of mercy towards others, uh, showing compassion towards others in their suffering. So that's the second target, mercy toward suffering. There is suffering in this world that is the result of our sin. Sometimes we look at people who are suffering because of their sin and we kind of have an attitude of, well, they shouldn't have done that. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And there is a suffering uh, people endure because of the sin of others. Not something that you do, but something that others do to you that results in your suffering. And there's suffering that is simply the result of the curse of sin on this earth. We get sick and we die because of the curse of sin in this earth. And all of these are opportunities for God's people to show mercy. For us to show mercy. Uh, Please turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 10. Luke 10, starting in verse 25. A great example of this mercy toward suffering would be the Good Samaritan of Luke 10. Um, And in verse 25, just to set this parable up, we have another reminder of one who has not yet received the mercy of God and salvation, and so isn't understanding what it would look like to be merciful towards others. Verse 25, Luke 10, 25. Behold, a lawyer. When we think of a lawyer today, we think of somebody who is an expert in the law of the United States of America. And a lawyer then in Israel was a person who was an expert of the law in Israel which is the Old Testament. A lawyer stood up to put him, Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, Well, what's written in the law, lawyer? (laughs) How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself, the great 
greatest two commandments. And Jesus said to him, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Now, the best answer that lawyer could have given in that moment, after, after knowing this, these were the two greatest commandments, the apostle Paul said all the law hangs on these commandments, right? The right answer for this lawyer then would have been to say, oh, I know the law and I can't possibly keep it all. I have not loved like this. I've already fallen so far short. So then what do you say? Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's the answer. But, verse 29, but he, desiring to justify himself, not knowing or having personally experienced the mercy of God, he says to Jesus, who is my neighbor? And just who is my neighbor? Who all do I have to love so I can make sure I get this done right? Or the other side of that coin, who all can I get away with not loving? And Jesus replied, and here's the parable. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, stripped him, they beat him, and departed, leaving him half dead. So we see this man's suffering was not a result of his own sin, but the sin of others. And then now, by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring oil and wine. Then he set, on him, uh, set, on his, set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and, and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, uh, Take care of him, and whatever you spend, whatever you need to spend, I'll repay you when I come back. Now, this mercy cost him something, didn't it? Mercy costs something. Maybe even, it doesn't say in this passage, but maybe even his reputation amongst his family and friends, being a Samaritan helping a Jew. It might have even cost him, this might make us gasp the most, he might have even missed his next appointment. He had to stay overnight even. This is not good. Jesus says, which of these three do you think proved to be the neighbor, a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And this lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. It's helpful to remember that the Jews hated the Samaritans. The Samaritans hated the Jews. It was mutual. The Samaritans were the descendants of the northern tribes of Israel. They were mingled and are married with the invading Assyrians. And so the Jews considered them half-breeds. Lesser life forms. The Jews didn't even like traveling through their territory. And yet, Jesus shows the Samaritan to have a better grasp on the mercy, on mercy, a better grasp on mercy than the Jewish priest and the Jewish Levite, who were more concerned with their own self-righteousness, remaining ceremonial clean, ceremonially clean in their own eyes, more concerned with that than on showing mercy to a suffering sinner who was just like them. 
Even the disciples, if you think about the disciples who later became apostles, uh, they would not have been the best buds before God graciously intervened in their lives. In fact, they even argued with each other after they started following Jesus. But in their ranks, there was an anti-Roman, ready-to-fight zealot. Simon the Zealot. Those guys, the Zealots, they hated Rome. They were ready to fight. They didn't care how bad they were going to lose. They were ready to fight Rome at all cost. And there was also Matthew, the Roman employee, a tax collector. So you have a zealot who hates Rome and wants to go kill Romans. And you have a guy who works for Rome, a Jew who works for Rome, taking money from Jews to give to Rome. Those guys weren't partying together before this happened, were they? You also have uh, the Galilean fishermen, those uneducated blue-collar fishermen. Uh, Later on, you have the Apostle Paul, who was a Pharisee. These people didn't get along in the political climate and the cultural expectations of that day. They were not supposed to be hanging out together. Imagine all of them going to church together. What would that have looked like? What would that look like today in the U.S.? How would being merciful prepare you to welcome people in, even invite them to come, or to go to them in their time of need and point them to Jesus? Even to someone who the news would even see that and be shocked to see you sitting with them and helping them out, like like a Samaritan helping a Jew in their time of need. It is a great thing that God has called people to himself from every tribe, every tongue, every nation on the face of the earth. And it's a great thing that he redeems sinners. Otherwise, none of us would be saved. And yet, we can make that same unmerciful mistake today, can't we? I remember last week in Matthew 5, 6, we saw that we hunger and fer- hunger and thirst for the righteousness. Not this person's definition or that person's definition or this platform or that platform. The righteousness. God's righteousness. And just thinking a certain way is not being righteous. Remember, mercy is not just feeling compassion. It is showing it. Righteousness is not just holding the right doctrine. It's doing it. And if the disciples had hungered and thirsted uh, for their, their version of righteousness, the tax collector righteousness, Galilean righteousness, Pharisaical righteousness, or if the good Samaritan was too busy being righteous in the eyes of his community uh, toward their cause of hating Jews, getting all the high fives when he got home for kicking him when he was down, that would have put a damper on his ability to show mercy to that Jew, wouldn't it? Blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. And then number four, last thing, the fruit. The fruit of mercy. And it's these two things. We receive it and happiness. So one of the fruits of mercy, we, re- we receive mercy. We show mercy because we know mercy, because we've received it. God has been merciful to us in a way that goes beyond our understanding. 10,000 talents and more of sin debt paid, more than we could ever pay. And resting in his mercy, rejoicing in his mercy, we show mercy to other undeserving sinners, just like us. And when we give mercy, 
we receive mercy. God is so very good to us that we would receive all of this mercy, all of it because he first initiated this and was merciful towards us. And then happiness. The first word in all of these beatitudes, blessed, happiness. Another good gift from God. This blessedness, this happiness, this contentedness that comes to those who have received and shown mercy to others. When we refuse to show mercy, think about this, when we refuse to show mercy, we get bitter, don't we? We get bitter, sinfully angry, sad, depressed. When we show mercy, we can be freed from all that. Freed from all of that. When we feel like we've got to carry the burden of making sure that we execute the justice, that's stressful. That's hard. That, that does damage. And when we show mercy, we're freed from that bondage. We know that because God has given us mercy, we will be eternally happy in him. It's coming. And when we show mercy in this life, that weight that we would try to carry to enforce the justice that only God can rightly execute, that weight is gone. And we are freed to point others to the same mercy we have received. And then in loving God and loving our neighbors, we point them to Jesus, seeking their good through repentance. And in all that, by God's grace, there's joy. We have joy in that mercy. Praise God. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for your great mercy to us. And I pray that as we uh, just think about these things, Lord, that our hearts would be driven to worship because of your goodness to us. Lord, you took the initiative. You saw us while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, while we were helpless and hopeless, while we were in debt beyond what we could ever hope to repay. And you sent Jesus Christ to redeem us. God, thank you for your mercy. And God, I pray that as we have this worship, as we consider your love and your mercy towards us, God, then help us to rightly see others, our fellow servants, other people who have the same problems. And they might look different. They might have a different name in our culture. Their struggles may not be the same struggles that we have. But God, they need Jesus just the same. Help us, Lord, to be lovers of people. Because that's what you are. And to be willing and happy to give of ourselves for their benefit, because that's what you do. And that you would be honored and glorified and that they might even be saved. God, we pray with all of this knowledge and, and with your goodness and kindness towards us, Lord, make us a merciful people. And we thank you for the mercy in it that we even receive. We thank you for all these things and we pray them in Christ's name. Amen.